This is the fourth in our series, This Is My Son, Listen to Him, and we're up to uh, the fourth uh, in our exploration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And we're up to the second part of uh, Jesus' exposition of the law. Uh, Last week we saw him stripping away all the traditions that that hid the law's beauty and perfection and and were used as a an excuse to not actually obey the true spirit of the law to to love your neighbor as yourself now he challenges uh, another tradition uh, a tradition that was known as doing righteousness the scribes and pharisees uh, were the teachers of the law for Israel. They were charged with making sure that Israel obeyed the law. And they held up three things that were seen as key marks of true piety. Uh, Giving, both to the poor and to the temple. Prayer, especially at the designated times and places. And fasting. These were considered to be the evidence of a faith in God that was genuine. Uh, they, they were righteous things to do, but they were also proof that you were righteous in God's eyes. Now, the principle behind this is actually a good and biblical one. Uh, James 2.18 tells us, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith that doesn't produce the the good fruit of works is dead. It's not actually faith at all. The Pharisees, by studying the law, they knew this, and so they wanted to articulate what it looks like not simply to obey the commands of the law, which is what we saw last week, but to to obey in a way that reflects this genuine devotion towards God. So Jesus doesn't actually condemn the doing of these acts of righteousness. However, he condemns the way in which they were being practised. As verse 1 says, before people, in order to be seen by them. So we'll look at this first the way in which they were being practised. Then we'll look at uh, each of them to see why they were significant for the Jews of Jesus' day, but also how do they apply to us today. So I want to focus on two key words that appear in this passage. The first one is rewards or reward. Now, there are two different words in this passage that are translated into the English reward. The the first uh, is the word misthos, and uh, it appears in verse 1 where Jesus says, You will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. And then each time he says, They have received their reward. This word is most often used in the Bible to refer to wages, receiving something in return, in payment for your work. Uh, It appears in Romans 
4 verse 4 where it says, Now to the one who works, his wages, mythos, mythos, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now the other word, which uh, appears three times when Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you, is a, a word that's used sometimes in reference to wages or payment, but in and of itself it simply means to give or that which is given. Now these two words with their their different nuances highlight the contrast that Jesus is making here about the two ways that we might approach obedience to God. The first, the misthos, is thinking that we do something to put God under obligation to us, to, to give us what we deserve, what we've earned. It's the mindset of someone who sees themselves purely as a servant, with God as their master, treats God in a very uh, non-relational way because in this scheme we, we don't actually need to know God personally, we just need to know what he demands of us and what he tells us to do. So when in verse 1 Jesus says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven, he's saying, The Father doesn't operate in this contractual way like you. Not only can you never make him obligated to give you good things because you've earned it, but he calls you to see him as your Father in heaven. He relates to you as his child, not like a master who employs you as his servant. The second word I want us to notice is this word hypocrites. Jesus calls those who think they can earn God's reward hypocrites. This word was used in the Greek in the theatre for an actor. An actor is someone who assumes a role that's not their true identity. They're pretending to be someone or something else for the purpose of a performance before others. If, as as Jesus describes, we practice our righteousness before other people to be seen by them, we're being a hypocrite. We're pretending to be someone who has a righteousness in and of ourselves instead of someone who humbly acknowledges that we have no righteousness of our own, but only that which is freely imputed, given to us by grace. We are, in simple terms, a legalist. So so why is it that a legalist, someone who thinks they'll earn God's uh, favour through their own righteousness, is ultimately a people pleaser, someone who performs before others? Wouldn't we expect them to be solely concerned with pleasing God, not other human beings? Well, what happens for us if if we're a legalist is that while we're trying to earn God's approval, we receive no affirmation from him. Because as we saw, 
Jesus told us our Father in Heaven doesn't play that game. And so we'll never be truly at peace. We'll never be entirely sure that our efforts are actually good enough. So we won't have a restful sense of God's favour. And we'll try the next best thing, which is seeking the approval, the favour of others. The acclaim of people is much easier to recognise, isn't it? It feels more concrete and definite coming from people whom we can see than simply trusting the grace of God whom we can't see. Now, of course, people can be very fickle and unreliable. And so there's no security in that either, seeking the approval of people. But we then deal with that by being selective in whom we associate with those to whom we perform. Uh, we, we seek to win the approval of those who we consider to be higher up the importance ladder than us. And that feels very rewarding. And it also enables us to look down on those who don't give us the approval we seek and we treat them with contempt and self-righteously uh, see them as lower down on the importance ladder and we may even question their spiritual state or their faith in God. So we'll be very judgmental when we're legalists, not out of a concern for the well-being of others, but because by putting others lower on the importance, the spiritual ladder, we make ourselves out to be higher. So Jesus says of these hypocrites, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When we work hard to win people's approval, well, that's what we'll get. But that's all we'll get. And that will then end up just going into the grave with us. Well, all we'll have is this bleak scenario that's painted by, uh, by Ecclesiastes. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. People will forget us once we're dead. And our reward that we've been seeking of the approval of people in this life will be gone. What a tangled web we weave in our selfish sinfulness. And we shouldn't think that Christians are immune from this kind of thinking. In fact, the testimony of history, the history of the church, is that Christians are just as capable as anyone else. And it's all the more evil, all the more destructive when this kind of thinking is perpetuated by those who actually claim to know the grace and mercy and love of God. Well, what's the antidote? The only antidote to this destructive cycle of self-righteous legalism and people-pleasing. Well, it, it can and must only be knowing our status before the Father as sinners 
justified by grace. When we come to see that the the only thing that ultimately matters in the area of approval is the Father's opinion of us, then we'll be first and foremost concerned not with what people think of us in public, but what the Father thinks of us in private. The Father alone sees in secret, Jesus says. And so he alone is qualified to judge us according to what and who we truly are, not according to all the masks we wear or all the the roles that we conform to. What we find when we come before the Father in secret, in private, is that while he has every reason because of who we are to condemn us and cast us out, instead he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but according to the righteousness of Christ. Colossians 3.3 tells us, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. To come into the secret place before the Father means to come to him hidden in Christ and his righteousness. In that place, we, we receive a reward from the Father, not as payment for our works, but because in Christ, the Father takes delight in us and sees our work in Christ as a sweet-smelling aroma. He loves to celebrate his children walking in love. To know myself as a justified person is to know that this whole matter of approval has been sorted for me by the Father. I no longer need to concern myself with winning the approval of either God or human beings, and I can instead focus on loving my neighbour and putting their needs before my own. So let's see what Jesus has to say about each of these Acts of righteousness. Put simply, there are three ways in which a person would express an absolute dependence on God as their father. Firstly, uh, giving. Now we heard Jesus say back in 5 verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow for you. The Lord called for a a selfless giving with the interest of the other first in our thinking. To give is to take a risk, a risk that we won't have enough for ourselves and a risk that we may not get anything in return. Being generous then forces us to depend on the Father to provide our needs. And knowing that the Father will provide all our needs enables us to be generous. To not hold onto the treasures of this world as if they give us security. The less attached we are to stuff and the more dependent we are on the Father, the more generous we'll be. Now for the Jews there were two key ways that they could give. They could give to the beggars on the streets 
and they could give to the upkeep of the temple. And both ways of giving, which were commanded in the law, gave opportunity to do so in a noticeable way. The beggars, they sat in the most public places where there were lots of people. And there were these prominent offering bins at the entrance to the temple. We know that what you gave as you went into the temple was very public because on one occasion Jesus himself sat opposite them and he saw how much people were giving. In Mark chapter 12, he commends a poor widow whom he sees give two cents over the wealthy people who were giving large amounts. So giving was commanded in the law and it was vital. It was vital for the ongoing temple worship and for providing justice and mercy to the poor. Yet behind it is this dependence on God as the provider of all my needs. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says God loves a cheerful giver. The key to giving cheerfully is to have my cheerfulness flow from trusting the Father's gracious provision of all I have and all I need. Uh, And uh, that will be our next uh, sermon next week as Jesus goes into uh, the section of the sermon that we could entitle Give Us Today Our Daily Bread. Secondly, prayer. Now prayer flows out of a absolute dependence on the absolute sovereignty of God. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him, in verse 8. And we might ask, well, if, if God is sovereign and knows my needs, why bother praying at all? But see, that question presupposes that God chiefly exists to give me the things I want. If, if I see prayer as simply a mechanism to make God give me things, then believing in God's sovereignty will kill my desire to pray. But if I see prayer as the expression of my relationship with the Father, knowing that he he is sovereign should actually deepen my desire to come to him because more than ever I realise my complete dependence upon him. Now Jesus teaches us three key things about prayer here, aside from teaching us what to pray for. Firstly, uh, we see that prayer is to the Father who sees in secret. There can be no faking it in prayer because the Father sees our hearts. He knows our intentions even without us speaking a word. Where do we see the first prayer in the Bible. I'd argue that it's the first time we see a human being talking to God. Adam, in the garden, when the Lord comes to him after he sinned. What happens there? The Lord calls to him, where are you? 
And this summons, this summons to give an account of himself forces Adam to speak nothing but the truth. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. In one sentence, Adam acknowledges who God is and what he was doing, walking in the garden. He acknowledges who he is as a man and what he had done. And he acknowledges the state of his relationship, which because of sin was one of fearfulness. When we pray, there's no room for hypocrisy. We can't pretend to be anyone else but ourselves before the Father who sees all. Secondly, we're told that prayer is to be simple. (laughs) Makes sense, doesn't it? If the Father knows what we need, we don't need to spend time explaining things to him. Notice how here in verse 7 Jesus refers to the Gentiles rather than to the Jewish hypocrites. The gods that the Gentiles worshipped were fickle and imperfect. They were really just uh, kind of a a souped up version of human beings. Uh, The Gentiles created their gods in their image. These gods weren't really interested in caring for their worshippers. So in order to get one of these gods to give you something, you'd have to bribe them or manipulate them. You'd have to to do things to demonstrate your undying loyalty to them. Or you'd have to pray so long and so persistently that that eventually give you what you wanted just to stop you from bothering them. The point of what we call the Lord's Prayer is not only to teach us about what kinds of things we should be asking of the Father, but to demonstrate this simplicity. When Jesus says, pray then like this, it's not just pray for these things, but it's also pray in this manner. A few short, simple words. How we pray reflects the state of our heart. And a simple heart, that is one that's simply focused on the Father and is resting in him, won't feel the need to pray to either get the approval of others or to try to cajole God into fitting in with our agenda. Thirdly, I'm jumping the gun there, prayer is an expression of our relationship with the Father and it can't be disconnected from our relationships with each other. This prayer in secret to the Father is is a prayer to our Father. By acknowledging him as father, we're also acknowledging all of his people as our brothers and sisters. So notice, 
the one thing he zooms in on as an application of this prayer, the matter of forgiving others. Now we need to be careful how we read this statement. If we take it alone, we might fear that Jesus is giving us a threat, that the Father will take away our salvation if we struggle to forgive. But remember, this, this is a covenant declaration. It's given to those with whom God is in a covenant relationship. They're his people based on his choice of them, not on their choice of him and not on their performance or goodness. When a member of the covenant community in Israel sinned, they weren't cast out and excluded from the covenant. They were, however, disciplined because this covenant God, this covenant father, is a father who disciplines his children. He disciplines those he calls his sons whom he loves. Biblically, forgiveness is a relational transaction between people. When the father forgives us, he doesn't merely think about it in his heart, but he works to ensure that our relationship with him is restored. And Jesus means it here in this sense, not just uh, the thoughts or intentions of our hearts, but the active seeking of reconciliation. The kinds of things he speaks about in the preceding verses that we looked at last week. If we're not pursuing right relationships with our brothers and sisters, well, we should expect that the Father will act in loving discipline towards us. He will hold us accountable to his command to love one another. Now, there's a lot more we could say about forgiveness, but we'll have to wait until we progress further in this series and we get to Matthew 18, where Jesus has a lot more to say about forgiving. But in this context, we need to see that harbouring unforgiveness makes us as much a hypocrite as those whom Jesus describes who pray on the street corner. It's presuming on the Father's forgiveness while ignoring his command to forgive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II and he coined the term cheap grace. Here's what he describes it as. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Knowing God's grace doesn't free us up to ignore God's commands. On the contrary, it frees us up to delight in God's commands. In grace, we see the great price that was paid for our sin, the death of the Son of God in our place. It's a grace that wasn't cheap for God. It was costly. He paid 
such a great cost, not to give us a ticket to heaven when we die, but to secure our adoption as sons, to guarantee the Father's purpose of conforming us to the image of his Son. At the heart of Jesus' mission was this action of bringing about our forgiveness. So if we truly desire to be like Jesus, then we must see things like forgiveness and reconciliation and loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us as central to our discipleship, central to our prayer life. Thirdly, fasting. Now, fasting wasn't actually commanded in the law. It wasn't required of the Jews to practice it as a spiritual discipline. Uh, Now, Israel would be summoned to fasting in times of great crises when they were faced with an impending attack from their enemies, when they were confronted by the Lord with their sin and called to repentance. Fasting was always to be accompanied with repentance and humility before God. Now, fasting had become a regular practice at the time of Jesus, probably because the Jews were under this oppressive rule of the Romans, of their enemies, and they longed for liberation. So they would see every day the reason to fast and to cry out to God to ask for deliverance. But the fasting that Jesus is describing, that of the hypocrites, it was a fasting without repentance or humility. It was done as a show of self-righteousness when it was supposed to be a confession of unrighteousness. Now, Jesus isn't the first to critique the way that people fasted. Isaiah prophesied to the Jews who were facing the coming judgment of God in the exile uh, around 700 years before Jesus. He said, uh, the Lord said through Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable To the Lord. See, these people were going through the motions of fasting. They were observing the religious rituals of bowing and dressing in sackcloth and putting ashes on their heads, but it was all, as verse um, 
verse 2 says, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. For them, fasting was a way of saying to God, you've got to help us because we're good people and we don't deserve to suffer. They were trying to bribe God to make him feel obligated towards him, towards them. Well, what does the Lord say in response to this? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. See how the spirit of this call to righteousness reflects Jesus' expounding of the law, all the things that we we looked at last week. God calls this the fast that I choose, Because it's a call not simply for giving up a meal here and there a couple of times a week, but it's the laying down of my whole life for the sake of loving my neighbour. It means going without my creature comforts, not as a show of piety, but as a genuine expression of other person-centredness. And see the conclusion. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. That kind of brings together that call we heard from Jesus to be the light of the world. But also the command he gives to anoint your head and wash your face when you fast. Get rid of the gloom. Now Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't fast but neither is he saying we should fast. What he is saying is if we do fast, we must make sure it's the kind of fast that pleases the Father because we do it out of a delight in his law of love in the freedom of his grace. Let's remind ourselves of what Jesus is doing here in this section of the covenant declaration he's showing us how the the bar of the law is so high that it demands a righteousness exceeding the pharisees a righteousness that reflects the perfection of the father himself and his teaching on these three acts of righteousness continues to do this if we presume to be able to adequately express outwardly our devotion to God then we'll fall into the same trap as these hypocrites 
playing a role, wearing a mask to try to fool ourselves and to and fool others into thinking that we're achieving it. For the Jews of Jesus' day, it was giving, praying and fasting. For us, it might be a different combination of pious acts that we think are vital for us to perform in order to create and maintain our relationship with God. We may fool ourselves and sometimes we'll fool others, less less often than we think we'll fool others, but we'll never fool God, the Father who sees in secret. Jesus told a parable about two men that highlight two approaches to righteousness. He also told this parable, this is Luke 18, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See how this Pharisee is keeping these three acts of righteousness. He fasts twice a week, he tithes faithfully, and obviously he's saying this as he is praying but these things could not justify him on the other hand the tax collector can only confess his sin and his inability it's not his declaration of his righteous acts but it's his humble confession of his unrighteousness that leads to him being justified By God's grace, let us pray that we will be able to stand in the shoes of that tax collector, both in confessing our unrighteousness, but also in knowing the joy of his justifying work of us through Jesus Christ. Let us pray that we will desire to please the Father alone, to rely on his approval alone and that as we rest in his approval in his favor that the outworking of that might be that we become the answer to our prayer may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven let's pray father it seems a little strange uh, after this message for me to now lead a prayer that's up on Facebook and in a very public way 
but I come to you, Father, on behalf of all who are watching this. We come to you not presuming to have a righteousness in and of ourselves, not presuming to think that this act of coming to you in prayer will somehow earn or keep your favour, but simply to humbly come before you and confess like that tax collector that we are sinners and we need your mercy. Father, we pray also that you will enable us to know the joy of our salvation, to rejoice in your grace towards us, that in all of our sin and unworthiness, uh, you have come to us in the person of your Son, who has borne our sin in that cross, taken away all of our guilt, and now gives to us his perfect righteousness. We ask, Father, that as we, as we know that, as we live in that, as we uh, come before you boldly to your throne of grace, that uh, you will be so at work in us by your Holy Spirit that uh, we will not be able to stop ourselves from uh, acting in that righteousness, not claiming it of ourselves, but uh, the outworking of you at work in us. May we be your ambassadors uh, in the words we speak as we proclaim your gospel and in the actions uh, that we take as we uh, seek in the power of your spirit to love one another and to love our neighbour as ourselves. And we pray this in the name of Christ, in whose righteousness we stand. Amen.